I feel sensitive when I get too critical of somebody, especially somebody that I think is like, I do think Jordan Peterson has been kind of struggling with some issues recently as well. And so I don't want to hit somebody below the belt. But I do think when somebody's so influential, it's worthwhile talking about their public figure. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this conversation, Michael and I discuss Jordan Peterson. In a previous episode, we covered his book, 12 Rules for Life. Jordan Peterson is a controversial political and cultural figure, but in that discussion, we put all that aside. In this discussion, we bring it all back. We cover what Peterson, the person, does well and what he doesn't. We discuss soldier mindset, audience capture, beauty, the importance of consistency, and neuroticism. It's wide-ranging and and should be satisfying to those of you who wanted us to touch on more cultural issues in our previous episode on 12 Rules for Life. I got a lot of value out of it because Peterson serves as a useful role model, but also a useful anti-model in a number of respects for me. So thinking through that more with Michael was really helpful in clarifying what we want to do with STOA and uh, this podcast. I hope you find it of interest as well. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteros. And my name is Michael Trombley. And today we are going to be discussing Jordan Peterson. So in a previous episode, we discussed the book 12 Rules for Life and sort of considered that by itself. Uh, Jordan Peterson is, of course, a controversial character. If you don't know much about him, you can check out his Wikipedia page or something of that sort. But we took on 12 Rules for Life sort of independently from the man himself. And it's important to do that, important to consider ideas on their own, on their own merits. But there's also the thought that every idea is embodied and that ideas cannot be divorced from their advocates. Nietzsche has the remark that you know, philosophy is autobiography. So today, to even out what we missed, we're going to be considering the man himself, and we'll follow a similar structure, highlighting some of our praise for Peterson, what we think he does well, then critiquing what we think he does poorly, and then end with any questions or points of his practice that we think are interesting. That was a good introduction. I, I like this method we've been using of going over the good, the bad, and then the interesting, because you know, it, it, it makes me feel a bit more comfortable to talk about criticizing ideas or talk about criticizing people. You know, what you just said was that Peterson exists within a context. So if, if we're going to talk about somebody and, you know, they're Jordan Peterson's kind of movement through the public space, I like to have that in the full context too of both the things that I think that does well and the things that I think are negative about, about his impact in the public space. So it'll be a fun discussion. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So since I had you start last time, I can kick it off with what I think he does well. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. All right. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is that he's positively helpful, especially helpful for many younger men, which is what he sort of designed his message for. 
I suppose one could say. I think 12 Rules for Life. A lot of people found that book very useful, and they have also found his video lectures exceptionally useful. He's a very motivating speaker. He's an excellent rhetorician in both the positive and negative aspects that you can describe someone as an excellent rhetorician. He has the ability to sort of, I imagine, capture his audience and convey a kind of feeling. And this is something that I've heard from people who have attended his lectures who don't really like him that much. I've never attended one of his lectures, but at least from secondhand reports, he's exceptionally good in person. Uh, so I think that's my first point of praise for him is that people describe him as helpful and they do that in a concrete way, not in the sense that, oh, they just like, they feel good when they attend his lectures, but maybe they're down in the dumps for a bit and then manage to turn things around. And Peterson is part of the cure for whatever lady they were suffering from. That's, that's what I have as my first note. Anything to add onto that? Yeah. I, so a lot of the things that I think he does well, I agree with you that he's very, very helpful. I think he's very helpful in particular for young men. And any kind of group of people, there's going to be people within that group that need help. I think young men need help. I think they need messages that are specific for them that they feel are relatable to them, especially as they begin to kind of make progress in language that's relatable to them, in kind of stories and metaphors that are relatable to them. I think Peterson does this really, really well. And I think he, he helps a group that, that needs help. And I think Peterson is, is at his very best when he's providing psychological advice to people who are struggling psychologically and grounding that in kind of his clinical experience and emphasizing personal accountability, emphasizing personal responsibility, emphasizing transformation, while also being sympathetic to, you know, the struggles that can lend into a position where you need help, where you can be, you know, not as successful as you want to be, not happy as you want to be not really regulating your emotions in the way you want to, or kind of experiencing kind of extreme emotions in ways that you don't want to. And he does a really good job, I think, of kind of speaking to those things in a way that, that helps, you know, yeah, disenfranchised, struggling men in particular. But I, I think many people, you know, I, 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 know, I know plenty of, you know, women as well that have benefited from his message or, or older, older people that have benefited from, from reading his work and, and listening to him talk. So, yeah, I think, I think, I agree with that. And I think that's kind of the, the, the best part is like, whatever else we're going to say today, there's, there's people, myself included, that have been, in, their lives have been improved by things that Peterson has said or messages or ways of framing those things. And I think that's a, that's an absolute positive. Mm -hmm. Yep. One other aspect I'd add in terms of positive is that I think 12 rules for life is a good work. It's uh, this kind of work that you can think with. It's provocative. And there are multiple levels of meaning one can take away from the work. So the first pass, you can treat it as a sort of standard piece of self-help. But at a deeper pass, you can see, oh, it has all these connections to these ideas and depth, psychology, of course, different religious ideas. Or there's also a political reading. And in that way, it's not too unlike Plato's Republic, where you have a view of oh, the individual and their parts, and you think through that. And then you think through questions about 
the the city and the, the parts that make up the city. So I think that's a another positive aspect that I'd like to mention on Peterson's side is that his works are something that are serious enough that one can sort of think with them, engage with different levels of, of their meaning. Yeah, I, I didn't think of this until you just mentioned it, but I think that's a great point. One thing we often talk about in terms of Stoicism, you know, a lot of the, a lot of our conversations are around Stoicism. I, I think of these three levels of Stoicism, and we've talked about this before. But the first is this kind of toolkit level, which is you know you can apply the dichotomy of control, or you can apply the contemplation of the sage, and you can do this no matter your value system. You could be a bank robber and say, I'm only going to focus on what I, what is up to me, which is robbing the banks to the best of my ability. You know, you can do you can do that kind of thing and take it at a real service level. Then there's this kind of second level of stoicism, which I think is about values, about what matters. The main value being to focus on virtue, that being the main thing that matters, being a good person. And then there's this kind of third deeper level about the way the world is, where you bring in stoic arguments about God or the nature of the universe. And I think you've nailed it that 12 Rules for Life and a lot of Peterson's work functions at all three of those levels, or at least unlike many other people's work, provides answers at those second and third levels, provides, it's not just, oh, clean your room. It is, you know, here's a conception of what a good, meaningful life means. It provides a sense of meaning, which is especially appealing to people who, who are lacking that or don't have that. It, it succeeds on those two deeper levels, which is cool. It's ambitious. It takes those deeper questions of meaning seriously instead of being at this, at this higher level of, well, I'm just going to give you this hack or this trick. That's going to make you 5% more productive. It, it tackles those deeper questions in a way that I really respect. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, what else do you want to say that's positive about the man? I mean, we prepared, we prepared kind of our discussion separately, but a lot of our things are overlapping. I mean, for me, it was that, you know, he advocates for a group of people that need help, particularly, you know, those that are struggling and particularly young men, as we talked about. He functions, he develops a coherent life philosophy. He's interested in these questions of deeper meaning which I think are really, really important questions. And I wish that more people that were not explicitly religious were tackling those questions because I, I sometimes have trouble engaging with those questions in a religious context, but I'm, I'm really, really interested in them. And then, I, and then his clinical foundation, you know, there's, just, there's just experience there. So I think as we'll talk about, we get into the, the, the parts that I, I think are, are maybe bad about his public persona. One thing that he does have is, is this clinical background, which, which comes into providing you know good advice especially for those that are looking to kind of develop better habits or moderate their behavior in a way that's really effective if they're kind of struggling in the moment those are yeah, those are my right. three points those are my three ones yeah what do you think yeah i think yeah i think we have a lot of overlap in our lists although we did prepare these independently i would also agree that one thing he does well is thinking about these questions of meaning and relating the problems of life to deeper questions of meaning is one move that he makes, the Stoics make, other excellent psychiatrists, philosophers who write about these sorts of problems of life make, is it's not just a matter of, oh, here are some tools in your tool belt uh, metaphor that you can use to solve whatever comes up. It's taking the next step to thinking about how you, should you train, how should you change your operating system, how should you change your entire 
worldview, if at all, and tackling controversial questions, tackling deep questions, philosophical questions head on, at least at, at yeah. his best. I think that's, that's well put. And if you're starting, if you're listening and you're starting with this episode, we get into some of those questions about the meaning and some of those questions about his deeper arguments in our, in our last episode on 12 rules for life. Uh, so, you know, if that sounds interesting to you, you can dig into those in, in that one. Yeah, for sure. The other positive aspect of Peterson, I would say is that, and this can be a vice as well for him and for many others, but he does not apologize to groups of people who are angry at him when those people are being unreasonable. I think in general, he is very clear about his stances and does not make the move of making an empty apology for the sake of PR or something of that sort. Now, there's nothing virtuous in doing that by itself, because if you actually did something that warrants an apology, <laughs> then you should apologize and probably make a genuine apology. Although what that amounts to, I think, is always an interesting question. And I think it's plausible that it, it doesn't look like what apologies we often see in the form of social media and genuine apologies probably make still leave many people angry. So that's not a virtue all alone, but he has made stances or taken stances at any rate that I don't think he has needed to apologize for. And he's also done the opposite. So I think Oof. that's a admirable set, at least for the former case. Yeah I, yeah, I I put this down in my interesting section, but I'll bring it in here. I you know I I think he's genuinely in pursuit of the truth. The truth. I have him here as not a grifter, is what I put him as. I think he believes what he says, and then he has the courage not to back down from what he says. And as you said, you know whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, you can't separate that from kind of the content of what's been said or the content of what's been done. But I think as a general kind of like overall quality, it makes discourse a lot easier. When people are genuine, it makes debating ideas a lot easier. It's kind of like a, yeah, it's kind of like a, a beneficial quality in people that are taking up public space to be the kinds of people that say what they mean, think what they mean, and don't apologize out of pressure, I guess. I shouldn't say unnecessarily, but out of pressure. I think that's a really, I, I, would, I would enjoy it if a lot more people took on that kind of quality because it just makes it a lot easier to engage with ideas when you're like, that's really what you think. I can really wrestle with it. And, and you're not just flip-flopping because of either what's going to make you more money or because of what is, is popular in the moment. That's, that's, that's how I read him, at least. I, I, I see him as, as genuinely pursuing that truth. And because of that, not apologizing if he doesn't think he's wrong and he only thinks it's being kind of socially demanded. Yeah, Which, yeah. I think that's right. And just to be concrete, since I think one correct stance I think he has taken is generally been in defense of free inquiry and free speech. In particular, he came to prominence for debating a Canadian bill, Bill C-16, which he argued plausibly would compel speech and would classify the failure to use someone's preferred pronouns as hate speech, which seems like a bad idea to me. 
which is different from the view should you use people's preferred pronouns, which I think is important to be clear about. There's what's the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do in some case, and then does the fact that someone misuses speech warrant involving the state punishing someone for hate speech. So I think that's a stance that he's taken and faced a lot of heat for that uh, I'm in general in favor of. We don't need to turn this into a podcast on whether that's the right stance or not. But I think since I said that it's virtuous that he doesn't apologize to the mob, sometimes I owe an account of when are those times. And this is, I think this is it. Yeah, I think those kind of situations... I, I think about that in terms of, you know, so you had this idea of kind of pronoun usage or what's kind of required or what qualifies as hate speech. You, I, I, this often comes up in kind of abortion discussions as well. I, I think of kind of a paradigm case or maybe something along euthanasia that we had a discussion on made recently. The, these, these topics where there can be a, potentially a break between what is ethical and what is legal can get really, really naughty really quickly. And so for in your example, you know, I, I generally think, I mean, yeah, we, we don't need to have the conversation as this, but to be clear, I think, you know, I think if you're not using someone's preferred pronoun, you're being kind of a, you're, you're being a jerk. Like that is a, that is a unethical thing to do in most situations. I would say in, in the vast, vast majority of situations, you know, you should, you should call somebody what they want to be called and you're being unnecessarily harmful in a way that is speak poorly on your character if you're not. But as you pointed out, you know, that's a kind of a different distinction from a, a legal precedent. And when those lines get blurry, you can get a lot of heat because people can, can understandably feel like you're talking about the, the ethical question when you're talking about the legal question and vice versa. So I think it's a, I think it's a great example of a naughty issue that's difficult to, to hold your ground on. Yep, yep, without endorsing it. Cool. Well, we said some good things. Anything else we want to say about Peterson, that was in the positive part. I, I, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, I said lots of, I said a lot of what I think I really respect about his ideas in in our last episode on twelve rules. Yeah, yeah. As well, but in terms, yeah, of I do think you'll get more as a listener on the positive side just from listening to our our conversation on his ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Should I jump into the into the bad then? Let's if you, do if it. You let off. Yeah, I have a couple ideas here that I, I I wrote down. My first was kind of you know my my first good point was like. Look, he really cares about disenfranchised, struggling men, which I really respect and appreciate. And I think that's a group that needs to be appealed to. But one thing that I think is kind of strange in his public persona is that he seems to have extreme empathy for some groups, but not for others. So, you know, men need help, but there are other groups that need help too. And I feel like there is, I I find in his kind of discourse, there's an incredible sympathy to one side or kind of incredible, I think a really admirable sympathy. To the struggles of some groups and not to others. And I find this frustrating. I, I, th- I really admire that kind of sympathy that, that he can have for, for the struggles, again, of, of, of young men in particular. But if he's, if he's I, you know, there's that, there's the, I've watched a video of him, you know, crying, discussing the current state of, you know, what it's like to be, to be a young man and to kind of, or to be, to be an incel in particular, I think the example was. And I, I kind of, I, I admire that almost radical empathy for a group, you know, that is that, that the, the ability to get there and to kind of see the, the, the struggle and to recognize the humanity in these people. But then I don't see that shared 
universally. It's kind of, it's kind of focused. And I think that is, you know, I don't want to say it's, I don't want to say it's necessarily harmful because, you know, you can't be perfect everywhere, but it is, it makes conversations uneven. There's amount of charity that's given to one group in his discussions that's not given to other groups. I, I think, for example, you know, members of, you know, the, the queer community or something like that. I see this, I see this, or people that are, you know, there's people on the far left, for example, that I don't, I think are getting things very wrong, you know, and I think I don't, I don't relate to, or I don't think they're right, but I can kind of turn on that empathy perspective and say, well, this is a person, maybe this is a person that struggled. Maybe this is a person that doesn't feel empowered. So they're trying to take power through, you know, yelling at people on Twitter or kind of coming up with these, these more extreme positions. I can turn that on for those groups. And I admire that Peterson can, can do that with disenfranchised men, but I just wish he would be able to do that in both directions. And I think you would have a better discussion, a more productive discussion if you're able to do that. But instead you end up, I think in this position, I guess my thought is you end up in this position with him where the, the disenfranchised young men, particularly right-leaning, become very sympathetic group, and then the left or the far left become kind of a boogeyman. And there's no way to empathize with this because this is going to be, you know, the movement that leads to new Russian gulag or something like that. And I find that, I find that, you know, I might not be getting this exactly right, but that's the, that's the, that is the way that I feel about it. And I find it kind of off-putting, that asymmetry there. Yeah. Well, I think he's become more the way I'd put this in is that he's become more of a soldier. So you had a conversation with Julia Galef and she has this distinction between scout mindsets and soldier mindsets. And scouts are people who, when they think about issues, they're sort of exploring. They're trying to come up with the right map of the terrain. Whereas a soldier is, when they think about issues, they are using their arguments as weapons to win in a, whether it's a personal debate or the political sphere or something of this sort. And he's officially become more of a advocate for right-wing type causes. And when you do that, well, then it's just going to be a matter of effective rhetoric to play up the plight of some groups rather than others. So I think that's that's one way to think think about what maybe you could have your critique though and make it deeper and say no it's not it's not so he joined the Daily Wire which is more of a political media organization so now he's a soldier but if you wanted to make your criticism deeper maybe you could say no he had this asymmetry from from the beginning do you think something like that's true Yeah I think he had the asymmetry from the beginning and I think it's gotten worse so I absolutely think it's gotten worse to the point where our, you know, I find him almost impossible to engage with as a thinker in his current state of, at least in, in terms of Twitter, from what I've seen on Twitter, I find it almost an, a different person from the person that wrote 12 Rules for Life, who's somebody that I think I had maybe disagreement with, but a lot of respect for. And I find you, you know, people talk about like late Wittgenstein or early Wittgenstein, like I feel like almost you have this like early Peterson, later Peterson. So I think there's been this movement to, to being a soldier, absolutely, to trying to argue a point at the expense of truth. Or I wouldn't say he necessarily is like lying, though. I think he's almost like blinded to the truth and almost becomes like 
which is the part of the soldier mindset as you were talking about is that you're not you're not aware of the fact that you're making up a story you're just you're just making these stories are just coming up because you're trying to fight for something you're trying to argue for something that you do believe in but i think that asymmetry was present in the beginning of his of, of his thinking at least going back to to 12 rules for life which is 5 years old now i think that asymmetry was there there was always kind of a focus on personal accountability always kind of a focus on you know particularly i think particularly young men but there there could be kind of a cause and effect here thing so i i'm going on a tangent here but you know, i i don't see this being unusual for peterson to be putting out this work on the internet young men are pause, are responding to it positively and then you end up in this kind of feedback loop where you say, well, look, these, these, people are, these people are enjoying this, so I'm going to make more work that appeals to them. And there, there can be a kind of like, you know, pe- that's what I'm saying. People need, people need, every group needs work that appeals to them, writes to them, talks in their voice, right? And, and we, can't have, we can't have works that appeal to every minority, but not to, you know, white men as well. That's a group that needs to be appealed to or, or just young men of color as well in general. But I, I think there's become an animosity, almost a lack of empathy, a lack of sympathy for the other side, rather than just a proactive focus for one side. You know, I, this is another thing I put up on one of my bad things is one of the things that I admired in 12 Rules for Life was this focus on personal accountability, this focus on clean your room, worry about yourself before you shout at the world, you know, don't be shouting out clouds like what what right do you have to change the major political factors of the world when you can't even get your things in order? But I find Peterson does the same thing and that rule doesn't apply when the, as, if the political factors become the far left or the political factors become feminism, right? Then all of a sudden it becomes, I'm going to shout at these political factors. I'm going to shout at these macro things. That's okay. But, but anybody you know, on the left being concerned about political factors on the right, that's, that's incorrect and you should worry about yourself. It, it, it seems inconsistent to me. It, it doesn't seem like a thing that cuts across political lines in a genuine way. It, it seems inconsistent. Yeah, I think there certainly is something to that. There's a, a persecution complex of sort, both for himself and for his political coalition, which does seem to have gotten worse over the past few years. In 12 Rules for Life, he has a section where he talks about the Garden of Eden and he has some line about the man you know the first woman made the first man self-conscious and resentful so what did the man do well first he cursed the woman for causing him to make this mistake and then he cursed god for making the woman eve such a temptress and then cursed god himself and so on of course this story is pointing a finger at Adam for failing to take responsibility for his own decisions. But one does sort of have the sense that that lesson could be integrated more deeply in Peterson's own political and cultural thought, that he's spending too much time pointing his fingers at others and reacting to others mistakes instead of promoting this accountability that he did early on for both himself and his audience. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's, it's hard to see because it's, it's a quality that it's a, it's an argument that I think gets a lot right. 
And it's a quality I think is really admirable if I can see it. And I think the absence of it is kind of, is kind of frustrating. Uh, yeah. So I had one more point I wanted to make here. I mean, it's the same kind of point about the asymmetry, though. I think it all comes back to that for me. There's, I, I watched this big think piece by Peterson, and he talks about the fear or the, the, the risks of the far left. And I think that's valid. I think, you know, my political position, to be really, you know, not to be, not to take a super controversial position here, but I think there is danger on the far right and there's danger on the far left. I think, you know, if on the far right you have Nazism and on the far left you have something like Stalinist communism or something like this, you know, both of those things are states that we should avoid. And if we can be afraid of Nazism, then we can also be afraid of kind of the, the Stalinist version of, of communism. And I was inspired, you know, one of my favorite authors is Milan Kundera, who is a writer from the Czech Republic, which had to deal with occupation by Russian forces. So a lot of his writing is informed by kind of the dangers of Russian occupation. And one of his first books is, is called the, the Joke. And it's about how in this communist re regime, there was no space for humor or ambiguity. It, you know, they, he, he made a joke against a political figure and they were like, what are you saying here? And he's like, oh, well, it's just a joke. And they're like, what do you mean it's a joke? You said something bad. And there was no, there's no kind of space for any ambiguity in this, uh, in this realm of kind of virtue signaling and collectivist power or whatever you want to call it. And I, I'm pretty sympathetic to those. I think those things are dangerous. I think we have to keep an eye on those. And I'm glad that people are keeping an eye on those tendencies because I think they're very harmful in, in their most extreme form. And I think some extreme forms of them absolutely exist in Canada and the United States, 100%. I just also think there's, an there's also a problem on the extreme right. There's also a problem with white nationalism, Nazism, racism, and these kind of movements. And I find the asymmetry in which those, those things are treated by Peterson really frustrating because I think ultimately both those movements could benefit from a lot of his insights or a lot of this idea of focusing on yourself, this idea of personal responsibility and accountability, these ideas of finding meaning in self-development instead of meaning in, in, you know, changing people around you or like controlling the world around you. But I find those kind of those criticisms of the far left, get, the far right get ignored. And I don't know why, if it's not a blind spot, it has to be, I think the point kind of, you made it being kind of the soldier for a certain position. And that's just not, uh, I lose a lot of respect for, for soldiers. Speaking of that's the soldier mindset, you know, people who are pushing a certain position. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have, I think, Soldiers often have a slogan that I think comes from the French Revolution, like no enemies to the left was the original form. You can also say no enemies to the right. And what that means is that as a political coalition, you will not critique members of your own coalition except in a very private way you especially will not do so when provoked to to you know condemn some member by the opposing coalition so it seems like that's something that peterson has taken to heart and there is one of the one of the sort of interesting questions that i think comes up for me is like when should you if ever apply a principle like that Plausibly, if you were in a state that you actually believed was turning totalitarian, it would not be unreasonable 
to form a coalition with people who you thought were otherwise unsavory but better than the alternative. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Find it available for free download in the Play Store and App Store. Yeah, I haven't heard that quote before. I think that's a that's a that's a good or that phrase. No enemies to the left or no enemies to the right. Yeah, I, I suppose you you would have to you would have to adopt, as you said, a worldview. It would be plausible to say, look, I'm going to choose the lesser of two evils. If I really do think this one is the we're we're close to this occurring, and this is a significant evil. Like we're close to far left totalitarianism. And I think this is a significant evil. Either either far left totalitarianism is worse than far right, or we're much closer to far left. And I guess I guess maybe then it just comes down to a difference of kind of intuition, inter maybe almost like an empirical claim or a factual claim. And I just don't I don't feel like we are, but but maybe there's maybe there is some integrity to be found there if you if you really do if you really do think that's the case and you say, look, well, I'm gonna no enemies to the right for this point because I'm really doing a kind of consequentialist thing here. I'm I'm working with people I'd rather not work with or ignoring problems I identify as problems for the sake of for the sake of the greater good. But yeah, there, there, there's a reasonable point there. I, I take your point, Philip. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I suppose you know you have, you have to think you're essentially at war, right? If you're at war on the front lines, you're not going to comes back to the soldier, right? Comes back to the soldier not, mindset. Yeah, yeah. You're not you're not going to cancel your fellow troopy because he's <laughs> got some problematic attitudes or beliefs. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that I think in general that that critique, what you are maybe causing me to think about a little bit more is that I've seen him turn more into a, a soldier over the past few years, but there is this view, of course, that that's actually been there for quite a bit of time, maybe since since the beginning of his sort of current political attitude, which probably crystallized, you know, as a decade ago, two decades ago. Mm -hmm. um, although it is true that may have gotten may have gotten worse. Two additional things that I want to add in terms of critiques. One, somewhat short, I think Peterson says a lot of silly things. His language is awesome, vague, and imprecise. There, you can look at a number of clips where you might be asked whether he believes in God or accuses other people of believing in God, where it seems like his language has, he's just essentially misusing language, speaking like a continental philosopher, the kind of philosopher he would critique for saying nonsense. Sometimes, you did know, you, just sorry, be, sorry, Caleb, because did you just say speaking like a continental philosopher is an insult? Was that what I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just to, just to be clear, I mean, people like Derrida or... Foucault, which are people that Peterson thinks don't make any sense and are yeah, bad. Totally. And, and I do think there is some value in continental philosophy, to be clear, but one of its least admirable traits is the fact that it's often impenetrable and one gets a sense that there's nothing to be uncovered beneath the you know cobwebs of theorizing. So that's, I think... Th that's pretty clear, and it's not that interesting to talk about. I think, like with continental philosophers, you, if you come at Peterson with an attitude of some of 
his statements are going to be silly and verge on the meaningless, but I'm looking for what's of value here, what other people see as a value here, then you will come away with something that's worth thinking about. But it is worth critiquing because it would be better if he didn't speak in such unclear fashions at times. And it's almost certainly true that he uses that as a crutch at other times. A more central critique, perhaps, that's worth spending some more time on is that he's just a very passionate person. Sometimes he will start crying when he's talking about a particular issue, even if it's quite intellectual. He clearly gets worked up about serious political or cultural problems. He displays some traits that can only be described as neurotic. I think he has an episode, an earlier episode with Joe Rogan, the podcast host Joe Rogan, where he talked about how drinking apple cider took him out of action for about three weeks and described the sensation that consuming apple cider caused in him as an overwhelming sense of impending doom. Which it's one thing to say, you know, this apple cider messed up my stomach for three weeks. <laughs> And another to sort of throw, you know, an existential crisis or existential angst at It's intense. It's an intense. Cider. Yeah, if you were in a party with somebody and somebody said, man, this apple cider is giving me a sense of impending doom, it would be like, that's, a, that's an intense person. That's a lot. Right, right. And I think this is connected to his persecution complex, the sense that there are people out to stop what he's trying to do, which is certainly true now, but was not always true. And I would think it would be better when talking about serious political cultural issues, whether it's relations between the genders, climate change, issues about whether modern democracies have turned into totalitarian states. It would be better to avoid being so passionate, getting so worked up about these sorts of things. I think that we should bring a level of epistemic rigor and epistemic calm, if you will, to a number of these discussions that can just so easily escalate into different parties passionately critiquing one another. And Peterson is sometimes part of the problem. Yeah, so to take this back to the a stoic lens, right? It's part of stoic ideas is that the issue of passions are not just that they're unenjoyable. So like if you feel extreme sorrow, extreme anger, it's not just that it hurts or just feels unpleasant. It's also that you can't really reason well when you're in an extreme state. So it's not just preserve your equanimity for the sake of not feeling things, but also preserve your equanimity because you can, you can reason better when you're not in the thralls of, of emotional turmoil. So if you're the kind of person, I mean, this was one of the points I was taking you to make or one of the things that I was thinking, or if you're the kind of person that can get put in a passionate state by something you've read on the internet, by a tweet somebody laid, you know, there was that famous thing of that overweight model or, or kind of plus size model on the cover of, I think it was Sports Illustrated, swimsuit model. And, you know, Peterson is, is angrily tweeting about this, you know, in a way that's incredibly passionate, like viscerally passionate to everybody seeing this Twitter thread. You know, I can't remember the exact wording, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was saying something like, you know, I'll never fall for your, you know, 
I won't succumb to this totalitarianism. And it's this kind of zero to 10, which is not just, it's not just kind of strange to observe, but also is just like a poor habit to have as a thinker and is probably dangerous if you're the kind of person that a lot of people look up to. And so it's one thing if, if people are reading your books, which maybe you've thought about carefully in a quiet context. And it's another thing if, you know, people are following along on your kind of daily thoughts or your daily reflections and you kind of succumb to these extreme emotions. Right, right. You said, sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. And then I think he goes on and says, he gets a little bit more unhinged. Um, Well, just, just this idea of evoking authoritarianism when you see a magazine cover of somebody that you yourself don't find attractive, although somebody who's clearly attractive to many people, you're just kind of, you're, you're, you're seeing something through such a lens that it struck me that, you know, how can you even objectively observe any situation? If, if this is like immediately what you get pulled into, it's like, you're almost, you're, you're looking, you're looking for red. So you're seeing it everywhere. You know, that's, that's where I felt seeing, seeing that tweet. Yeah, yeah. The argument that this picture of the plus size model is less beautiful than probably the artificial sort of very, I don't know, how would you say, sensate model who probably appeared in the previous year doesn't seem exceptionally strong. You're just saying that even on empirical grounds, it's not a very good argument. Like even on just like an objective grounds of, of the kind of people people find attractive, it was like a weird hill to die on. Is that what you're saying? No, I think people almost certainly found the previous year's model a hundred times more attractive. But there's this idea of beautiful that the people probably found their more attractive in almost like the pornographic sense rather than the sense of I beauty. See. Yeah. So th- that in that sense, it seems to me like if you have these views about it's important to promote these ideas about women's beauty complaining about the 2022 version of swimsuit sports illustrated what's so bad about that compared to all these previous decades where they've promoted essentially different forms of sex stuffed models that do probably do not map except in some sort of 10x sense that they map onto beauty in the same sense that mcdonald's maps onto good food there is something there and you can certainly say that previous editions of the swimsuit models were more beautiful than the existing one that seems plausible to me but they're still distorted right and they're still certainly more pornographic. Anyway, that's a, a bit of a detour. But <laughs> I think that the point, the point stands that we have many criticisms of, of Peterson. Yeah, I want to kind of bring that back. I mean, we could have a, I guess we, we got to do another episode on the philosophy of beauty or something like that, because it sounds like an interesting topic. But the point remains that I, I find it difficult to take someone seriously who finds themselves personally affronted by something that I think is innocuous, if not actually beneficial, to have more representation or different kinds of bodies on swimsuit magazines. 
But at the very least, you said if, if distorted by social pressure, no more or less distorted by social pressure than the other examples of models in the past. But that kind of, those kind of examples don't evoke the same kind of rage from him, which I think comes back to that kind of asymmetry point because he's looking for, it feels to me like he's looking for examples of right. this left authoritarianism in practice. And then it's kind of ready to jump on these. I mean, another example, you know, that I see, I see in your notes is the time that he tweeted out an example of Chinese porn, right? Which is just this, for those that aren't familiar with this example, it was kind of, it was a joke. It was a, it was a pornographic dominatrix scene. And the person tweeting it had tweeted a joke that this was like a, an example of some sort of Chinese, I think it was a, like a sperm collection camp or something like this. And Peterson immediately took this as, you know, terrible evidence of the state of the world without any kind of further research or without any sort of further inspection of what's going on here. And you got to be especially careful on Twitter, right? You're not talking to a good friend of yours is Twitter. Anytime my emotions get riled up on social media, I always have to kind of take a second and be like, is this person being ironic? Is this a joke? I have to kind of have that awareness. But I think to me, that example speaks to, speaks to this poor epistemic skill of getting really passionate really quickly. Just gotta, just gotta kind of, just calm, just, you know, just calm down and just think about the things a bit more, you know, because right. you know, just, just do that more. Just, 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 just be more like that. And I think you'd be happier and you'd probably have better things to say because you'd be saying them from a more careful position. Right, right. Well, to, to just to end, to get in some of our things that we think are interesting or that we don't necessarily think are good or bad. One of the questions that I floated earlier that I think Peterson brings to the fore is, you know, what sorts of battles is it worth becoming a soldier for? And how do you take a stand well without becoming captured by your audience or being defined by your enemies, the worst form of your enemies in particular? And I think those are what Peterson provides, I think, is an anti-model, especially in the politics and cultural type case of how to answer that question. But the question does remain, you know, how do you take these stands? Well, and especially as you become more famous, these problems almost certainly get harder to manage. So those are two question marks I'd like to like to leave with. What do you have on the either on those on those lines or anything else you want to shout out? I just think that's an insightful point, right? Like we can't we don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that I, you know, I, I kind of transcend these political issues. If, if Peterson thinks these are the issues that are affecting the world, we might disagree on empirical grounds or thinks that these are, if the issues he takes to be the most important, he thinks are the most important, then there's kind of this, maybe this empirical disagreement. But I think ethically, you're raising, again, in that kind of ethical question of like, well, if you do think something needs to be fought over, how do you do that well? And how do you do that without losing yourself? And I think those are really interesting questions. I'm just, just, just repeating back what you said, but I, I'm really struck by that, that question of how do you not lose yourself in the fight? Because I, I feel like he's lost himself in the fight a little bit over the last couple of years in a way that I, I, I think many people, the vast majority of people would say that he is not in a good way or has at least gotten worse as a person to kind of look up to or take their ideas seriously. And that's a, that's a really, really compelling point because I don't think the answer to that is to think there's no battles worth taking seriously. So the question is, how, how do you fight, you know, which are worth becoming soldiers for? And then 
how do you fight them well? I just, I, I really agree with that. For me, I'm kind of struck by the interesting point I wanted to leave with was this point of what, it, what core thing is he hitting on that makes him such a polarizing figure to so many people? Like I would, I would think that for years, Jordan Peterson was the one who you'd have the kind of most evocative dinner conversation with, with casual friends, where it would be the, where typically, you know, people maybe have similar political leanings or similar backgrounds or similar kind of friendship groups would, would very much all agree on things. You'd almost, you'd almost have half a group thinking he's the worst person ever and half a group thinking, oh, he's great. I really love his stuff. And I don't know if I have an answer to that, and maybe Caleb, you do, but I'm I'm kind of curious about what is the, where is that part that's swinging past it, such that you know it's so viscerally negative for some people, and then very viscerally positive for other people. I think there's something interesting about human discourse and human nature, and or kind of current society there that that is demonstrating that I haven't really been able to put my finger on. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I won't answer that question right now, but if someone's <laughs> listening to this and they have a answer do, do let us know i think we're running out to time so we can call it anything else you want to add no i just like a fun conversation thanks for listening everyone if you anybody else you'd like to hear us talk about any other book reviews this was a fun format so looking forward to doing it again especially with anybody you think is worth talking about but yeah caleb is always a fun one and i also think that like i think i'm a really empathetic person i think i feel sensitive about this kind of stuff and i i i I feel sensitive when I get too critical of somebody, especially somebody that I think is like, I do think Jordan Peterson has been kind of struggling with some issues recently as well. And so I don't want to hit somebody below the belt. But I do think when somebody's so influential, it's worthwhile talking about their, again, their public figure. I, I, I really take this as kind of a criticism and evaluation of their public influence and their space in the public sphere. And as long as they're in that public sphere, I think, you know, it's fair game to talk about that. Right. Yeah. I think I feel less bad critiquing people, which is maybe a, a vice <laughs> on my part. We'll see. But I do think it is worth restating that I think Peterson's work is, especially some of his earlier stuff, is worth engaging with. But it is true that it does seem like he's gone off the wagon a bit. And I don't find him as interesting or challenging or, in a real sense, as good of a character, at least in public, as I used to. And that is unfortunate. Great. All right. Great conversation. Thanks for doing it. Awesome. Thanks, Gil. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com and please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.